It's Tuesday, August 10th. I'm John Ellis from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, which is loosely based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we have a conversation with Hamish McKenzie. He's one of the co-founders of Substack, a subscription newsletter publishing platform that enables writers like Anne Helen Peterson, Andrew Sullivan, and yours truly, to build a business from their work. The writer does the work, readers subscribe, Substack handles the back end. That's basically the model. I spoke with Hamish about how Substack started, how it has grown, new opportunities, and how they plan to fend off bigger fish, like, say, uh, Facebook. Here we go. Hello, Hamish. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start where we always start, which is how did you get from there to here? You started life in New Zealand. You now work in San Francisco. How did you get from New Zealand to San Francisco, and what were the key stops along the way? Uh, That's a a little bit of a convoluted story, so I'll I'll try to make it not boring for your listeners, but I was um, a high school student and then a university student in New Zealand. I studied at a place called Otago University. English was my degree, and I edited the student magazine there. I knew I wanted to go into journalism uh, as a career, and so went to do a master's degree in Canada, in London, Ontario, in journalism. I thought that the, um, the most important story to cover at that time with grand hopes of being a foreign correspondent was the rise of China. This is leading up to the Beijing Olympics. And I somewhat naively thought that perhaps Hong Kong would be a good place to watch that from. And I went to Hong Kong with about a month's worth of money to try and see if I could get a journalism job there and ended up working in entertainment magazines and digital marketing trade magazines and freelanced a bunch and eventually fell in love with an American woman who brought me with her back to the United States, started in Austin, Texas. And I I was a freelancer for a couple of years writing about all sorts of things. Ended up in Baltimore following her because she went to law school there. And while I was in Baltimore writing for a publication called Pando Daily, which was uh, covering the startup ecosystem and technology news, I got a job offer by Elon Musk to go be the lead writer for Tesla. So that took me to San Francisco and sort of started me on this path to eventually becoming the startup founder. And you wrote a book about Tesla, right? Yep. I wrote a book about how Tesla is catalyzing this transition from the oil age into electric transportation. It's called Insane Mode. Did Musk cooperate? No, I had to write that book (laughs) as if I weren't ever an employee of Tesla. So it's kind of weirdly written from the bird's eye view, even though I did have um, some time inside the company about just over a year working in communications for Tesla, which is actually kind of a long time by Tesla standards. I couldn't get rid of the itch to do this book. And so that's when I left to go write it. And after the book is published, was that the beginning of the creation of the idea, I guess, of of Substack? I had finished writing the book at about the same time that my friend Chris Best had stepped away from a company that he had helped start called Kick. Kick was a big messaging app. It's actually faded a lot now. It's pretty much dead now. And he was halfway through what he intended to be a year off. And he was doing some writing uh, and shared this piece of writing with me, bemoaning what had become of the kind of media ecosystem and how people's brains were being broken because 
the incentives at the root of it were all wrong. And he asked me for feedback on that essay. And I said, uh, yeah, these are all things that are true and that everyone who works in the media knows these things are the problems. So if you're going to publish this essay, make sure you include a couple of paragraphs uh, proposing an alternative that's better than the status quo. And to his credit, he never actually got around to finishing the essay because he got excited about uh, building this company instead. And we kind of talked each other into it. And that's what started Substack. When you looked at the marketplace, if you will, and there's Blogger and WordPress and Medium and Twitter and all of these things that sort of would look like obstacles to success of Substack, was what was the opening that you saw in the marketplace or was it just, you know, this would be good for writers and therefore it'll work? Yeah, we weren't trying to be like any one of those platforms or trying to be an improvement on one of those platforms. We were trying to do something different, which was at its core to make it simple to start a a paid subscription publication. Mm -hmm. Uh, We started simplifying that even further to call it paid newsletters later on when we, we figured that that was even simpler to understand. But the idea came from following very closely what Ben Thompson was doing with Stratechery. Ben Thompson is a writer who's based in Taiwan who writes about the business models of technology companies. And he was doing Stratechery, uh, it's the name of his publication, kind of out of his spare bedroom in, in Taiwan and running it like a blog that had a newsletter component. And so once a week, he'd publish this deep dive analysis on you know, what's going on with uh, Microsoft's aggregation strategy or how Facebook and Netflix are similar and how they're different, something like that. He'd do a free post mm-hmm. once a week. And then for those who wanted to go deeper with him, because lots of people came to fall in love with his viewpoint and his analysis, they'd have the option to pay $100 a year to get three more emails from him a week, three more posts delivered by email. And they would be a little bit less polished, a little bit more timely and um, of the day. And he'd use that model to make a ton of money and to do the kind of work he really loved to do and he'd been telling anyone who'd listen that they should try this model. That, and he didn't know why people weren't. Mm-hmm. So we thought, well, what if we just make one simple software package that lets any writer in the world have what Ben Thompson has with the click of a button? And that then by like reducing the friction to starting something like that to almost zero, then interesting things could happen. And we started with Bill Bishop, who writes about China. He's got a newsletter called Cynicism. And we pretty much built the platform around him and his needs. And he was successful in his very first day with Substack, immediately brought in six figures of revenue. And at that point, we thought, well, we've got to take a good swing at this. We've got to see what we can, what we can do and how far we can take it. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. So in the early days, you... you you built this platform around Bill's newsletter, which, by the way, is great. I'm a subscriber. And did you go out and recruit writers? How did you fill out your lineup, if you will? Yeah. Once Bill was successful, I started going out to other writers. In fact, I'd already already started it, <laughs> trying to pitch the model to them. It's not so much come and use our beautiful publishing tool or our beautiful blogging system. It was pitching the model, which is publish the email on the web, charge a monthly and annual subscription publish some stuff free, some stuff paid, and uh, see who shows up. <laughs> and my pitch to people in those early days was, this is working really well for Bill Bishop. 
this might work really well for you too. Would you be interested in exploring the possibilities? And a bunch of writers who kind of fit the mold showed up and started doing it and started succeeding as well. Even writers who were appealing to audiences that weren't business audiences. So Bill Bishop is an obvious potential success because all his subscribers can justify putting it on their corporate credit card or you know, the diplomats and academics and journalists for whom his newsletter is a really useful tool to helping them do their jobs. Whereas other writers like Daniel Lavery were writing for an audience of people who are interested in literature and comedic riffs on Bible passages and updates of Victorian literature and modern vernacular. <laughs> and Danny Lavery, he was charging like $5 a month, $50 a year, and his subscribers were paying out of their own pocket. So we saw that there are all these potential uh, use cases ranging from business to consumer. And that the thing that united these writers was not so much that they covered a particular vertical or they had a particular professional focus, but that they were kind of outsiders and that they didn't fit comfortably into the dominant media structure. And they were especially passionate or knowledgeable about a, a particular subject area or pursuit. And so Danny Lavery was appealing to people who loved jokes about literature. And Bill Bishop was appealing to people who needed to know more about US-China relations. And there are a bunch of writers in the world who are like that that we could go to and start convincing to use Substack. And there are a bunch of writers in the world who are waiting to be born into that model who we can help bring along for the ride. I imagine in the early days, it would have been a hard sell. Did it get easier as you moved along from round to round or was each round difficult? You know, it's always difficult to raise money, but I mean, was it? Was yeah, it, it has certainly got easier. We were lucky in the very early days, we applied to Y Combinator, which is a premier startup accelerator in Silicon Valley, and that helps put you on a path to raising money. So we raised early on in the life, we raised $2 million in seed funding at the start of 2019, which was the end of Y Combinator. Our view of it was like, how many readers are there in the world who are dissatisfied with the current state of the media and would be happy to pay for writers they trust who can improve their experiences, who can give them better things to read, better, more targeted things that work in particular niches? And how big can that potential universe be? But one of the early believers in that story was uh, Andreessen Horowitz, who led our Series A and then led our Series B and has made that fundraising process pretty straightforward for us because these things can be drawn out. And we've always had a pretty small team, although now it's, it's grown to 60 plus, but we were three people when we raised our Series A. Is the model sustainable at 10% of, you know, I have a Substack newsletter, obviously, and we do whatever business we do and you get 10% of that. Is that enough to satisfy those investors or do you need to, I, for one, right, on my new Substack letter, I have a fantastically wealthy audience. And so luxury products, you know, BMW cars or whatever would be a natural fit for the people who read the newsletter. Is there going to be an advertising platform within the newsletter itself that it will enable audiences to connect to the products that they might want to buy? So two questions there, two questions there to address. Uh, 10%, is that enough? And then should we be thinking about yeah. advertising? 10% is really solid in our view. It's not so high that it turns writers off and it's not so low that it doesn't provide enough funding to build a sustainable, strong, solid platform. It's not very difficult to 
see how this company becomes profitable if we just continue on the path with that fee structure. So we're very happy with that and think it's solid and scalable. <laughs> we certainly have plans to do a hell of a lot more and the, the value of that fee is just going to get bigger, uh, better and better. But in the meantime, it's also enough to make sure that Substack is not going to do anything rash business-wise or like suddenly scramble to invent a new business model because it's not working out. Mm-hmm. So that's why we think 10% is a good number. On the advertising front, we don't have any plans to build advertising technology into the product. We think that's a different business. Subscriptions is our business and there's so much work to be done to improve subscriptions technology for everyone. We've had 30 years of innovation around online advertising and we had hardly any (laughs) innovation around direct payments for the internet. And so we're just really excited about the opportunity and we're really excited about building a platform that is built completely around putting readers as the customers rather than readers as the products. How about the people that are coming to kill you? I'm thinking of Facebook's bulletin as one. How concerned are you that given your success, bigger, badder companies will come hunting for you? Well, that's what we want to see. This is the change we're trying to bring to the world to move people away from the systems that Facebook and Twitter and Google, YouTube and the likes have kind of maximized, but where attention is the thing being bought and sold and into the system where Again, the reader becomes the customer and where subscriptions are the things that underlie the economy. It's more of a trust-based system than an attention exploitation system. That's what's good for the economy. That's what's good for society. At the same time, we'd rather play them on our playing field than to go over there and play them on their playing field. Right. They're playing catch-up. They're having to adjust their business to the model that we set. And we think that gives us a pretty nice advantage. But it's certainly um, nothing we can be complacent about. Those are amazing companies who are amazing at building products and have a lot of money and can buy audiences. So we think it's a great challenge to have, and we're up for it. We're here for that. What are the growth opportunities, aside from putting the reader first? You just announced a comics creative capability. Yeah, there's not much different about Substack that comics creators will use compared to straightforward sort of other journalists or bloggers or academics or analysts. You can get a long way with the existing image features and writing features in Substack and the community features, which is a big thing for these comics creators as well, because they have such devoted fans. Right. But what happens in the publishing world for comics creators is they tend to get really screwed. They, they get hired on contracts by the likes of Marvel or DC, and they produce this work for a set amount of money per year. They don't get health insurance or any other benefits. They don't get any of the IP, which in comics world is huge. Everything. Yeah, you might make the Guardians of the Galaxy, and that could go on and become a, you know, a multi-billion-dollar franchise, and you should be getting a big payday of that because you are the creator of that. In the current world, that doesn't exist. In the Substack world, that can exist. So what we want to do is with comics creators is put them in charge, give them full ownership over everything. It's a new model for them, and this model they get. All the benefits they would have got from being a big part of a big publisher, they still get the distribution through the Substack network and through Substack's publishing tools with their own audiences with whom they already have direct relationships. They get access to an array of services, including healthcare, which is big for them. That doesn't happen in the comics industry. Editing, design support, and they get some upfront grants that help them start these businesses in the first place and help them go pay for the talent that they need to help them produce these great comics, which means artists and 
letterers. There are people who do the lettering within comic strips. And the creators who are coming on board as part of this first batch of deals are extremely excited about this and feel empowered and feel a sense of ownership that has been lacking in their lives for so long. Forever, right? <laughs> Forever. Yeah, this hasn't existed until, until today, really. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. There was a spate of stories in which Substack came under attack. Tell us about that. What in the world was that about? It's hard to say what it's about. I can say broadly some of the things that was, you know, what, what people said about it, us. But it, to me, what it ultimately was about was expressions of pain and uncertainty through the insecurity of a life lived in the media, and especially at these times of kind of cultural division in a difficult political landscape and with COVID on in the background. But what people were responding to were, was this idea that we will pay writers somehow. So we have this program I talked about before in describing how it works for comics, where we remove the financial risk for them by paying an upfront grant and then letting them keep 15% of their subscription revenue on top and then connecting them to these editing and healthcare type services. And after that year of that first um, get started program has come to a conclusion, they flip back to just keeping 90% of the revenue and us keeping 10% of the revenue. So this package is designed to give people the security they need to start this publication they want to start, to start this media business they want to start. And we haven't revealed the names of the people who get those packages because we believe that it's the writer's business. Right. They're setting up a private publishing business. They can choose if they want to make that public or not. Right. And we respect their privacy on that. But because we hadn't named who was getting these deals, it led to a bunch of speculation about who's getting the deals. And some of that speculation went completely off the rails. People interpreted the Substack Pro program as more like an employment program. And then they imagined who might be getting some of these deals. And because we're in a difficult cultural moment where people uh, have enemies online, they imagined that some of their enemies were getting these deals. <laughs> and that meant that Substack was funding evil or Substack was funding <laughs> bad people. And there were some side arguments in there like this is the behavior of a publisher and not a platform and Substack's pretending oh my God. that it's not a publisher and all, all these other kinds of things but that was the basic whirlwind that Substack was using this program to fund people who shouldn't be funded it was based on a lot of wrong speculation hmm. and uh, it was very hard to counter that because we aren't going to just go out and out the writers who are part of the program who didn't sign up thinking that they're going to be used as PR collateral for Substack or, or like as a heat shield. Right. We did release a statement that showed that this pro program was home through anonymized data to like a really diverse set of writers from, you know, backgrounds and ideologies. Right, right. I don't think there's anything we can do in one particular moment to just completely win people over and convince them that that was all like a whole lot of contention about nothing in particular. But what we can do is over a long term, keep proving that this is a positive thing for writers. This ecosystem helps writers, it helps readers, that it is based on trust and that the whole thing collapses if the trust goes away and to keep proving that we're a trustworthy platform. And that's a long effort. It's not a PR exercise. 
I was surprised by it because it just seemed to me not dissimilar from somebody getting a book advance, right? And then depending on the sales of the book, obviously the return would be adjusted. But in your case, you were also offering health care and legal protection. It would seem to me all of that was good. So I was, I was <laughs> mystified. Yeah, several interesting things on the book publisher comparison as well, because you don't always know who's getting an advance from a book publisher when those books appear on the shelves. But there's key differences, like the book publishers, at the very least, license the copyright. They approve all the text before it goes to print. They won't sell anything that they don't consider sort of editorially appropriate. Whereas Substack, the writer owns absolutely everything. Substack has zero editorial influence. Right. And the deal itself is better. Like you get an upfront grant, not in advance that you have to earn out like in, in book publishing. You get an upfront grant and you get 15% on top for that first year. And then when the switchover happens, it's you going to 90% of the revenue. And in book publishing world, and I know this because I published a book, you get an advance. Most people don't earn out the advance. If you do earn out the advance, only then do you get a percentage of the sales. And the percentage of the sales typically tops out at around 15%. And it never gets better than that. <laughs> and, right. uh, and then book sales peter out over time. And subscriptions through a Substack model, as you've seen with news items, they tend to keep increasing. It's not necessarily yes. a rocket ship every year, but they keep on going up, unlike book sales, which tend to just fall off a cliff. Right. I wanted to ask you one last question, which has been asked of me because I'm a Substacker. There are people who have asked me about doing a Substack newsletter on a specific subject, similar to what my brother and I and Lisa uh, Nochez do with bird news items. So it's all about birds every week. If you're going to have a successful newsletter, do you have to be more specific and more focused? I think there is great advantage to being more specific and more focused and having a niche that is kind of at the intersection of two niches. You make it work with news items with the quite broad focus because of who you are and because of your ability to tell those stories so pithily and to curate the things that matter for people to help people respect and use their attention wisely. Having a niche that is... Not so niche that there's no market there, that there's no audience that you can't find like a thousand people in one day to pay, but niche enough that it's not going to be, that it's not well served by existing media and where there's a community that's kind of hungry for good information and good coverage. I think that is the sweet spot. And I think there are millions of those niches waiting to be unlocked. Well, Hamish, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's been a fabulous conversation. And we will be in touch because I have two Substack newsletters and I'm thinking about a third. So Excellent. Yo, well, thank you for publishing news items with Substack. You've been there since the early days, one of the best ones. And um, we're really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you hosting me on the podcast. Thanks very much for doing it. I really appreciate it. Cheers, John. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Birdie. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Billy Gardella. See you next time.